Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Antique Auction Forum. Today's episode is number 112 with Bram Hepburn. This subject today is on bottles, but let me tell you, if you are not into antique bottles, I can still tell you you're going to really like this podcast. It's a great pleasure to record with someone that is passionate about what they do. It's always my favorite podcast. Just a couple of quick announcements. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Those icons are right on our website, which is antiqueauctionforum.com. As far as uh, leaving comments, uh, unfortunately, our message board is permanently closed. We had 14,500 spams on there in just a matter of a couple of days. It's just overwhelming. We've tried over and over again to keep it open, but our message board is permanently closed. But please feel free to leave messages on our podcasts or uh, blogs in the future. And if you'd like to contact me, it's info at antiqueauctionforum.com. Thank you, and enjoy today's show. It's a good one. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com. I'm in Elliott, Maine with Bram Hepburn. How are you doing, Bram? Great. How are you doing? You know, it's a real pleasure to do a podcast with a great friend. Uh, we've known each other for many, many years. And Bram, this, uh, today's podcast is going to be about bottles. Uh, bottles, I would have to say, is one of those things that you consider a treasure and treasure hunting. Yeah, there's, there is no hobby like it. Um, yeah. And that's, I'm not just saying that there, there is no other hobby where you can have fresh uh things that are fresh to the market in terms of an antique or a treasure and it's something that was in your in your yard or you know in the yard of uh, somebody's home where they've been walking over it um it's been sitting there for 150 years they didn't i mean you could say coins i suppose but bottles are usually Mm -hmm. found in in a treasure and you know a group of you know 20 30 50 100 of them yeah um and if you you know you hit the right age um you know pre-civil war um, it's a treasure, and um, and the, these are tossed amazing. out items. These are thrown away. These are yeah. trash. Yeah. The uh, the one one man's treasure is another man's trash. That is, um, that was. They were talking about bottle digging specifically because uh, <laughs> you know when I look at my my collection, it's it's treasures and there's value to it and history, and it's and it was literally garbage. It was thrown out the garbage and yeah. everything rotted away or evaporated or or just um decayed except the glass so wherever they were thrown pretty much all that's left is are the glass bottles and the china and the pottery shards and things like that yeah but before i get into any of this stuff i want to talk about our past because um we've known each other for years and you actually catered my auction and uh, and people used to talk about your great food and that's going back. Yeah. And also I want to talk about, I am going to do a blog sooner or later about auction catastrophes and you were involved in one. And the, do you remember in Rollinsford, New Hampshire, the on-site auction where the torrential rain came down? Yes. We had oh my gosh. the pouring so much that everybody that was sitting in the audience had to lift their feet up onto their chairs because yeah, the, the river was coming through the tent. The women, the women were all holding their high heels and... And yeah. putting their feet up on the ta- on the uh, backs of the chairs in front of them. And not only that, you had a flamethrower on your barbecue. <laughs> your oh, hose, that's right. 
Your yeah. hose came wow. off the barbecue and the flame went everywhere. We're talking 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I remember I'm sitting there grilling kebabs or something, and I look over and look like a blowtorch had tipped over on the ground, and I see <laughs> propane shooting out sideways, and there's water flowing everywhere. And I mean, we, a, we weren't going to set anything on fire, but we certainly could have yeah. melted somebody. It was Yeah, that, yeah, was, that was a day. It could have been, been a lot worse. Yeah, I remember <laughs> I sold a 1902 Cadillac. Uh, oh, one yeah. lunger, uh, $50,000 or something that day that had been sitting yeah. in the guy's uh, garage for years and years. But anyway, back to bottles. I just thought I'd take that little jag because <laughs> uh, that was quite a catastrophe that yeah, day. Yeah, jog my memory. Yeah. Um, what got you you're really into bottles? Well, as a bottle collector, you get asked two questions, and that's one question you get asked. It's always, how did you get started, and what's your most valuable, the most valuable bottle you've ever dug? Ah, okay. And, uh, and a lot of them are, are similar um, in terms of how you get, how you get started. Um, grew up on a farm. You know, it was a, it was a turn-of-the-century farm, and they had a dump out back. Um, maybe, boy, it was way back. It was a, a good half a mile into the woods, and my, my older brother, Brad, um, discovered the dump and took us out there on a farm tractor with a trailer on the back and egg mm. baskets, the, the, the wire egg. Ba- There's some in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. As we yeah. speak, there's a couple back there still. Um, they're 50-year-old. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, so we loaded up the trailer with those and started digging, and, and it was just fun as a little kid to do it. And then, uh, But my brother had this book by John P. Adams, and it's Bottle Digging in New England. Uh, you where know, were you, by the way? What? I was uh, Hanover, Mass., just oh, okay. south of Boston. And uh-huh. John P. Adams, as it turns out, an author, was from uh, University of New Hampshire, and he wrote three books on antique bottle digging specifically. Um, and it was one of the first books that uh, listed bottles and showed pictures and the um the the estimated values which looking back you know makes you chuckle when you look at as the market was establishing itself and and mm-hmm. and people were deciding what was going to be a a valuable bottle and what wasn't I, I know in his books there's a a cobalt blue cure bottle dates just 1890s-ish or cuts sure rheumatic cure is what it says on it mm-hmm. and it's cobalt blue and at the time he had i think five to seven dollars on it for value and right next to it i think was a warner's safe cure oh yeah which was which is real common. popular but well you've, you've seen yeah. that yeah and back then i think he had about twenty dollars on that bottle and still today those are worth you know 15 to 20 dollars <laughs> because people are digging it was such a popular yeah. item and that Orcut Sure Rheumatic Cure, um, the last one I saw sold for, you know, $1,000 or a little bit over $1,000. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, he was in business for a year and, uh-huh. uh, and it had uh, a lot of appeal to it. And not, no other examples showed up, you know, for, for a couple of decades. So it just kept gaining in value. You know, mm-hmm. that could change tomorrow if somebody discovers a, a, a cache of them in a, in a hole and pulls up, you know, 25 yeah. of them. And somebody threw a couple of cases of them away. You know that that occasionally happens, and it changes the value of the bottle. Like that, that has happened. That You've seen that happen before. It has, and you hear up. You don't know what's a what's a you know a fish a fish story or not. Yeah. Um, but there's ones where somebody will dig um, a case of bottles that were extremely rare, and they do their darndest to keep it to themselves and not let wow. people know that the market has suddenly changed on this one of a kind bottle or you know uh-huh. two, two known examples of what, what it'll say in a catalog. Um, and now he's, you know, he's dug 20 of them. Um, but, and so he might put one up for auction and just keep hush. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I'd be, 
I'd be calling my friends and oh my gosh, look at it. you know, and the yeah. and the the holy grail, the holy grail is <laughs> struck, and yeah. like the stock market crashing in bottles for for that one particular <laughs> bottle. It's like, uh-huh. but uh, it you know it's for it's more of a hobby. I, I love the value of it too, but. Mm-hmm. Um, I could never sit on news like that of a discovery. I just yeah. couldn't do it. It's too yeah. too exciting and fun to have found you know to have found something that's been sitting there, um, untouched for a hundred and however many years. Wow. Now, now um, you mentioned that the, the two questions. So I might as well ask you the second question that people ask you. No problem. Uh, get it over with. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, what was the most expensive bottle you ever found? Um, no comment officially. But unofficially, it, it you can't really answer the question. But just to to, uh, to satisfy curiosity, say in the say in the two thousand ish dollar range, you know, it depends mm-hmm. on how long and hard I tried to get that price for it. Um, uh-huh. I, I mean, uh, you say found. I found an insulator for five bucks at a yard sale and sold it for thirty five hundred. That's uh-huh. kind of different. That happened. That happens yeah. with you know. That's the once in a lifetime kind of yard sale find that happens in in. Uh, all kinds of collectible hobbies. When you were at that yard sale, did you know when you saw the piece what it was? Um, do you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? No, because it was at a yard sale. It was my yard sale. <laughs> no, no. Okay. Oh, it was it, my auction, right? No, no it was okay. your neighbor's yard sale. Was it really? <laughs> it, was, right. it was, and it was pouring rain, and it was a Sunday, and and I saw these two people sitting under a little pup tent still sitting out there and it's like man they had the yard sale yesterday i gotta go over and buy something so i, I went over and i was just gonna buy something because i felt bad for them and i see this i see this telegraph insulator sitting down in a box and right off i knew it was good yeah um i didn't know the value the you know what it was what it would go for yeah um but in in you know in the ethics of antiques maybe you, you use the same thing where you're supposed to you're not supposed to tell people oh that's really valuable i'll pay you x you're supposed to say what do you want for this and then yeah. give it and give it to them i said what do you want for this after i you know kind of looked at it for a second i just knew i wanted it i said what do you want for it and they said a quarter i don't know and so i gave them five dollars and they were like whoa i'm glad we had the yard sale today <laughs> and then i walked away and then i wound up i wound up selling it a few weeks later um that's that's part of the hobby of bottle digging and collecting but that's that's the mm-hmm. same with any kind of antique and collectible that's um, just knowledge is power that's basically what it proves it is know? but what was different about the bottle digging and scuba diving um treasure hunting aspect is um it's a whole different it's a whole different animal and that's more what i'm um my you know, where my passion is and i uh, was going to bring up the scuba diving a little later but you just mentioned it and I think that's when you told me that I, when we were talking and you told me that you're now scuba diving for bottles, that's when I said, I got to have a podcast with you because <laughs> who else in the world? I mean, I've never heard of that before. You, you've gone beyond uh, looking for the early foundations and looking for the bottle dumps and now you're in the rivers. So yeah. let's, let's talk about how that's going. Cause you, you found a very nice bottle. You told me. Oh, I found a bump. Oh my goodness. I found a lot. Yeah, um, I mean, you just showed me downstairs part of your collection. I couldn't believe well some of the things you found diving. Pair of sandwich glass lamps for that are a matching pair that are just perfect. Yeah, that it's was amazing. That was crazy, and it was like they'd been laid there fairly. They were recently. side by side in the mud. You see. They were. I could see. I could see both of them at the same time, and I was like, "What are those?" And I pick them up, and you know, you swish the mud off of them underwater, and and you, first of all, you think these can't be real, and then you think <laughs> they can't be whole, and then. 
you know, you, I have a floating basket up the, that floats up above me and that you're tethered to. You're down ah, mucking through. Are down you actually the... floating along in the river? D- typically, yeah. Typically yeah. you get in and I have maybe 15, 15 feet of rope um, that I hold in one hand and then a flashlight in the other hand and you're kind of crawling along the bottom of the river. Yeah, you can't really see anything, can you? I mean, not, not, not this time, not in the summer, not in July. Yeah, a um, winter I bet you can. Do you, you actually know, have a dry suit? There it is. Yeah. All right. Wow. There's a long story You're... to that. I'm not. I'm not going into the dry suit. I yeah. Didn't. Yeah. Uh, didn't like it. That this winter was the first, and and I'm. I'll say I'm big enough that um, that uh, I stay warm very easily <laughs> um, with a with a wetsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real good quality thick wetsuit, and I can. I is if the ice. Um, if if the river isn't iced up, I can get in. Dive for a while. I bring a coffee container, a hot water, and I pour that down the front of my yep. wetsuit, like they do. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I can usually go twenty minutes, just like just like you're outdoors. You know, in a in a blizzard, you can you can handle it for quite yeah. a while. Um, real cold when you get out. That's, so you do just rivers, basically. Um, Have you ever done like the open, uh, like the? I don't. Most most guys dive for bottles. Um, dive in the ocean. And harbors and off, mm-hmm. off of docks and things like that. I tend to I tend to like the rivers just because I I know the woods and I know New England really well. I know where the settlements were and how they settled and how they grew, and mm. so where the where the commerce was and um, you know and you learn to get a feel for the river and how fast it's flowing and where the eddies are and where the trash would still be versus uh, rivers that flow too fast and the trash gets ripped downstream and, and smashed on the rocks and it's turned, yeah. it turns into sand eventually, I guess. Yeah. Because um, yeah. um, the main river here is Seven Knot River, Piscataqua River. Seven knots. Oh, That's it's very a, fast. It's too, yeah, it's too yeah. fast for me. I, yeah. I went in it a couple of times. You go, you go out, you go out 100 feet, and then you come up and look at where you went. It's like, how did I get down here? <laughs> how did yeah. I get down here? Yeah. But, you know, the guy that I dive with, does does the Piscataqua quite a bit and has come up with some good stuff. Um, there's bottles in every river in the country um, that there that there were old homes and businesses on. Yeah, um, people would toss stuff in the rivers. That was their oh, garbage. Ridiculous. I mean, yeah. I, I I'm able to locate uh, sites using Google Earth, um, and I get the I get the records and the historical maps, and I find where the old homes are, and then from Google wow. from Google Earth you can. You can see pathways from the house. You can see a wheel where the wheelbarrow, and they still use it today. Maybe the kids go down and go fishing on the same path. Yeah. But uh, the best one I found this spring, best site I found down in Massachusetts, um, big, big 1700s home, you know, and I Googled it, and I, I found when it was built and that it hadn't been moved. It was in its yeah, original foundation. That's kind of a key factor. It is, and... and yeah. um, and then uh, from the map, I could see, uh, you know, you can see the lawn and you can see the, the pathway, uh, the footpath where the color of the grass has changed. And you can see, okay, there's the path and there's where, and sure enough, I go, I knock on the door, I get permission. The guy thought I was oh, nuts. Nice. This was, this was yeah. in, uh, this was in January. He said, you're going to do, <laughs> yeah, you're going to do see what? I, you I mean, you told me about your little uh, falling off the dock into the water in February. Yeah. yeah. Escapade. This was a guy showing up, can I, you know, can I walk across your lawn and jump into the river um, <laughs> and tell, you know, and telling him what I was doing and he loved it and he had kids in the house and they all came out and watched and, wow. you know, it was entertaining for them. But as yeah. soon as I, you know, I found that path that I could see on the Google, Google 
Earth map. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I got all my, finally get all my gear on and I slide down into the river. a lot of work. Yeah. And as soon as I get, as soon as I open my eyes down there, it was, they had just dumped their trash there and it's, and the river didn't flow quickly enough to, to pull it away during the flood seasons. And it's just sitting there. It's just sitting. It was mostly all, you saw the, uh, that nice mocha wear. Yeah. Mocha wear um, shards. There's a lot of mocha down there. Most of it, it wasn't, wow. a, it wasn't a successful yield if you want to call it that yeah but i i I have a ton of late 1700s early 1800s um glassware mocha wear redware um just a handful of whole um items and it was it was more like an archaeological experience rather than a uh, hitting a gold mine of treasure yeah um other times you go down there and there's a lot of whole stuff and you're pulling up um you know you fill up the basket with the with with whole bottles, um, you know, from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Typically, you're not pulling up a bunch of valuable good bottles in one day. You mm-hmm. might once a year have a really great dive and a great or a great dig. Um, mm-hmm. More often than not, you are getting um, common things, interesting things, um, slightly damaged, very good things, but they've got a chip and that kills. It pretty much kills the value yeah. value of it. Yeah. Um, you know, and occasionally you get a mint, perfectly mint piece. And it's like, oh, now I can sell this and make some money and pay for this hobby. And then you <laughs> fall in love with the piece, and then you never get rid of it. And it's still, you know, still sitting here in the house. Yeah. And you're there a trying true to collector. See, it is, yeah. and you're trying to sell all the the junky stuff that you got. And it's like, why do I want to? You know, people are like, why do I want to buy those? I want the ones that uh, I want the perfect ones. Well, I think you know that t- touches on a subject that every every uh, true collector refines their collection. They really do. They'll sell the duplicates, or you know, try to keep the cream of the crop and sell what they started you know a lot of collectors in any field yeah will collect about anything and then they find their niche and then they start collecting that type of object and eventually start weeding out you know the lesser things but right everybody always wants the best yeah and and i you know i've collected for uh 35 years now and and originally i made up a business card back when it cost a lot of money to make a business card. Yeah. And my business card, you know, said that I was a collector of inks and colored medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I, that's what I loved. And when I would go to a show and buy and sell and swap and, um, that's what I would wind up and make my c- collection. Uh, I had a really, but I have since sold most of those because I didn't dig them. And as I started to get good, what I call trophy bottles, mm-hmm. meaning like a hunter would have a, a trophy room. You've got one that <laughs> that was so exciting when you dug it, and you you remember the instant. You, you know you yeah. have a it took when a you pic- find it. Yeah, yeah, it took a picture in your brain, and you just never you remember that what kind of, what you were wearing practically. You know, you yeah. remember who uh-huh. you're with and what the day was like, and um, you know because it takes a, for digging, especially it takes a long time to get it out of the ground because you're doing it really slowly, and you're saying, oh please, you know, don't have the top don't have be broken. Off. Yeah. yeah, and then you get it out whole, and you're just so so excited. You know, it might be worth a hundred dollars, which isn't going to make you rich, but the idea yeah. that it's been sitting there, kind of waiting for you in the ground, and yeah, and typically I'll look up at the house that I got it from, and just kind of in my head, it's it's corny sounding, but I kind of reenact in my head that. Somebody wearing colonial clothes came out of that specific house with a barrel and dumped, you know, dumped yeah. this pile of stuff here. And it's just been sitting here, you know, through through history, through the Civil War, through World yeah. War II, World War One. All history kept going in these this this 
pile of bottles just sat here waiting and waiting and then undiscovered you know some tuesday afternoon in november i come along on my hands and knees with a rake and start digging and yeah and uh lift it up and uh what was their garbage turns into you know my trophy for my for my collection and and you know the quality of the glass is so so pretty um and because they were just learning how to make glass on a utilitarian level um they're, they're making it quickly as quickly and efficiently as they can and as practically as they can with local ingredients um, for their recipe for their glass, the the uh, the ash and the sand from in the clay, um, you know the all the different ingredients that create speci- for me specifically New England glass, so that I can pick up a you know a one inch by one inch square of glass and hold it up to the light and say, oh boy, we're onto something here because it's locally made mm-hmm. pre Civil War um, glass and. Uh, Kind of went off on a tangent there. I forgot what I was going to say. It's pretty typical That's, for uh, when I get going on, yeah, on glass. And it's so, so when you dig up something like that, you you start rambling and talking, and uh, you're real happy and. <laughs> yeah. um, that's why that's why you have the hobby. That's why you go out as much as you do because it's really really fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you know this already, but I started digging bottles when I was like I remember nine or ten or something like that, and absolutely loved it. Had a big collection, and then. I had someone actually steal them all, and it's uh, off to uh, hear how people lose their bottle collections. Yeah, and that kind of like put a damper on me collecting, you know. And sure. wh- who would steal a bottle collection? But this guy, oh, I, I'll, my yeah. my buddies that I dig with out in New York State, one of them went. They had a yard sale, and Dad said, "Oh, get rid of these bottles for me." And it was a box of his, you know, of his junkiest, you know, fifty cent bottles. And the little kids were helping out with the yard sale. Oh, I know where Dad has a whole bunch more bottles. And he wasn't, you know, Dad wasn't home. And they start bringing his, uh, you know, cobalt blue cone, you know, open pontled bottles out. And oh, I guess no. he lost about, you know, six or seven of them before the mom realized, <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. No, same idea. Kids trying to be helpful and yeah, didn't work out that way. Um, so you not only are a collector, though, you were at a lot of bottle shows. So you were involved in various associations as well. I was into it more. I, when you've got the kids, you know, I get three kids now and yeah. working a lot and not as quite as much time as I did at one point. And eBay has changed a lot in terms of uh, there used to be for the typical bottle collector, you know, real typical local bottle collector. He had one or two days where he could buy and sell his bottles and trade. And it was when the local bottle, you might go down to Massachusetts, you know, three hour drive or something and set up at a show. Mm-hmm. And then you'd be digging and going to flea market and getting or getting ready for the next show. And what eBay has done is made it so that you can go into the woods and dig, you know, 20 common bottles and, and uh, sell them on eBay. And then maybe have your little envelope of, of eBay made, bottle money and you've got you know seventy five dollars and then do it again next week and keep adding that money up off to the side in your spare time uh, um and then and then show up at a show with some money um so that now to buy to buy so you know ebay maybe has its, its downfalls or you know the different computer computerized auction market type things um but compared to like back in the 80s you would go to a bottle show or you know a big auction bottle show and you'd see the same stuff, and the, the high-end collectors would kind of be hanging on to their stuff. They wouldn't even bring them to the show. Hmm. So you'd go, and you'd see the same. And and now with both uh, eBay and other auction services like that and um, the catalog auctions, 
there's, you know, there's one out of Pennsylvania and one out of Michigan and, um, you know, Sacramento too. Yeah. Yeah. American bottle auctions. That's right. I, yeah. I, I dealt, dealt with them before. Yeah. Um, those are doing constant, you know, the turnover and the, uh, the new stuff that surfaces now because collectors have access to bottles they've been looking for forever. So they say, well, mm-hmm. I want, I want that $15,000 flask. So I'll, I'll let these four or five, um, $2,000 medicines go and they'll put them for sale in one of these auctions. Whereas before that wouldn't happen. There just wasn't the, the speed of, uh, and yeah. access that the average person now has to to um, probably every collectible, but certainly for bottle diggers. Bottle diggers were kind of low low on the totem pole. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you go to an auction, um, you wouldn't see the high high end, real valuable stuff back in the day. You'd see mm-hmm. the kind of common, more more novelty item type of thing. And now there are um, the prices that you see for. That the prices that you would see because you, you've done antique auctions and you've seen the historical flasks, mm-hmm. you see what you know. You see them going six, Stoddard and Keen and all yeah, that. you see yeah. six figure prices. Um, you know, one hit a hundred thousand. Oh, the bidders. Um, I know a flask did really. Um, a flask hit a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, I didn't even know that. I think it was a cobalt blue Washington George Washington flask. I believe I could be wrong. It was close if it wasn't a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. But the you know the Stoddard made medicine bottles, mm-hmm. um, colored glass, meaning olive amber typically for New England bottles, open pontled. It's pretty rare, wouldn't it be? It'd be automatically, it's valuable. Yeah. Um, for me, there is a bottle by the name of G Stone's Family Liquid Cathartic Lowell Mass, about ten inches tall. Um, I've got a little corner of a piece of one downstairs, and that's like a that's like a twenty five thousand dollar bottle. Wow! And that would make my day. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in addition to that, I've got a shard of a bottle that's it's got one it's got two letters on it: NH New Hampshire N dot H dot, and uh, it's people refer to it as the shard because nobody knows what it was. They know it was made at Stoddard. You can tell. By yeah. all those the descriptions I so described it, earlier, so it was a started medicine bottle, but you don't know what it was. Nobody knows what it was, and I've yeah. shown but it. But embossed to, medicine em, bottle, started. Yeah, and that's and, pretty. Then, and you yeah. can you can yeah. line it up with other bottles that are are uh, eleven about eleven inches tall, square, concave corners, large embossing. Which you know you're not going to put large embossing on a little bottle. Yeah, you can tell through kind of through a deductive process that it was a big bottle there was a big bottle yeah. it was a big medicine bottle it was made in new england it said new hampshire on it um yeah. you know and i show it to the best i mean mike george over he's over in the middle of the state of new hampshire he's probably one of the top collectors of new england glass mm-hmm. you know he, he, he if i'm gonna see him can you bring the shard he just wants to look at it again really yeah because <laughs> yeah. it's just it's what in the world was this and wow and uh if i can find a whole one you know in the river somewhere yeah, um, you know who knows what that would go for. The the market yeah. for that would just be would be crazy. What it, um, someone would pay for it. Yeah, yeah, it would. It'd be it'd be such an exciting find, and it would be a type of thing if it was at a flea market sitting on a table. You know, a hundred people would walk by it probably yeah. before anybody would say, "Boy, that looks like a really different old bottle." You yeah, know? yeah. Um, but again, yeah. a lot of collectibles are like that. Right, I'd walk by right. stuff and not know. Um, That's right. How rare it was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing I always noticed at my auctions in the past, when you came in and I had bottles, you instantly knew exactly what every bottle was all the time. Just, I mean, you're really good like that. 
Are you available to the, if the listener has an old bottle to email you pictures for identification? Yeah, and I, sh- I should like lay down all kinds of ground rules, like I won't do this and I won't do, but I won't say that because if anybody ever asks me something about bottles, I usually just want to talk about it, or yeah, I'd be so curious to what they had that I, you know, maybe I won't give them a formal written appraisal without you know getting paid to do it. But but if they want to send me stuff, I could just tell them, oh, that, that looks like you got some good stuff there, and that one there, and watch out, you know, look at that one. That one looks like a good one. Okay, yeah. If you go to our podcast site, antiqueauctionforum dot com. And you look at this podcast, just below it, I'll have a link that'll automatically go to your email. That sounds great. So people have that opportunity. That'll be fun. Yeah. What are some good places to look for bottles besides the rivers, besides the colonial homes? Or what's what's some interesting places to look for bottles? Um, for people who do what I do, it's kind of divided up into three categories. And one is diving and or mudding you might call it that where <laughs> you go you go down um where there's a mansion down on the ocean in a salt marsh especially where there's not a beach and people don't walk uh-huh. you go out in a kayak maybe and and uh you're looking at this mansion and you see a stretch of salt marsh that could you kind of look at it and use your head and just say they couldn't use that for farming they couldn't use it for grazing they couldn't mm. walk over it and so that's where they decided to throw their trash back 1850s wow so if you're in a kayak and you you see a spot where people can't get to it other than by a boat and say low tide and you see glass Mm. sparkling there um there's people that spend a lot of time it's it's exhausting it's kind of dangerous you can get you can sink up to your you know chest in the mud (laughs) and, and uh yeah and get yourself into trouble um but uh stuff gets pulled out of salt salt marshes like that um in really good condition too, because it's been encased, you know, encased yeah. in the mud. So you're not getting the, you're not getting the mineral stain that you get in a lot of in a lot yeah. of the. Yeah, you see them turn like white colored yeah, from the ash yeah. that got mixed in. Um, so you know that's one spot. You know, ravines down in between old buildings, um, old farm sites, diving, um, but really kind of nationwide, I'd say. The uh, place people dig for the most are the old outhouses. You've heard about people digging. You know, they're called privy diggers. Um, um, you know, there's websites for privy diggers. Um, and so people actually tossed stuff out in the outhouses. Yeah, in the, in the, way, the way it happened, um, kind of in a nutshell. Privy diggers. Is that yeah, what it is? and it's... That's it, going to be the title of this show. <laughs> well... Maybe you should call it the seed layer. Um, the seed layer. I, I when the first time I dug a privy wasn't that many years ago, and I was out in New York State. And um, privies, outhouses here in New England, they typically didn't dig them really deep because it was so hard to dig hmm. um, an outhouse. So what they would do is have a an outhouse they pit would move that was, it. or they would clean it. Oh. They were called honey dippers. There was a guy that came down <laughs> in an old wagon. Um, you've sold. You have sold privy shovels at your auctions before wow i can remember it's a, it looks like a big long ladle <laughs> and the guy's job like the guy that comes and pumps out your septic tank now <laughs> this guy would come and scoop out your and it, there'd be ordinances for different um villages yeah um that it had to be done x amount of times maybe twice a I year i remember selling that i sold it as a soup ladle <laughs> no, no, no 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 it was a okay. big long it's yeah. about like eight foot eight foot long pole with a ladle type attachment and you knew you knew that's what it was Yes. Or you know now? 
No, I knew. I remember then. Because <laughs> okay. somebody said, oh, it's a honey dipper, show, a honey dipper show. And, that, that's, and that's what they were called, the, the honey dipper wagon. Um, but so what you're looking to find are towns that didn't have that ordinance and that people just would never clean them out. And like you said, they might have moved it. But what what I started to say was that here in New England, they cleaned them out because of so much work to dig another hole. They didn't want to, whereas yeah. digging in other parts of the country, um, digging a well or digging a privy uh, wasn't so hard. It wasn't, you weren't digging into granite, you know, with an old yeah. 1850s shovel was not um, a fun way to spend the day. Philadelphia, Cincinnati, um, New Jersey, certainly New York City. The privies are 10, 12 feet deep, and they're lined like a well is lined. Um, they're either lined with rocks? With, yeah. Either with wood. They're called wood, woodies, a wood liner. Um, so they call woodies privy? It, it, yeah. What kind yeah. of privy? Is it woody, is it stony, or is it brick layer? Um, those are the three types of foundations used for, for um, outhouse pits. And um, so what would happen? They would dig the privy. They would, we'll just say they would use the privy. And as they were using it, um, sometimes Grandpa would be out and he'd be drinking when he shouldn't be drinking. He'd just toss it down there. Um, but but uh, also if there was household trash and say there was six feet of snow on the ground, um, they got to get rid of this trash at some point. And so sometimes it would wind up down in the, in the outhouse. Uh. And what was good about that was that it was a soft landing when they would be throwing <laughs> bottles. It's not, it's not like throwing it into a pile of rocks. And these rock walls, it was, you know, yeah. plopped down in the privy, and and then it would sink to the bottom. And so the the outhouse pit is there till the 1890s or so, when civilization crept in and they got toilets. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the outhouse either gets knocked down, eventually falls into disrepair, and what typically what they did was they when they were getting rid of the ash from their fireplace, where they're always looking for places to dump ash, they would throw down the outhouse pit. Um, and then eventually people get tired, afraid their kid's going to fall in that open hole, so they would just fill it in with stuff. So if you kind of can reconstruct what I, ju- what I just described to you, oh, and, th- and then they knock down the outhouse, plant the lawn, mm-hmm. and so what you've got is this cavity underneath the lawn, big, long, rectangular, um, like a well, with grass on top, looks like part of your lawn. We use probes, and you probe down and try to find these foundation walls. Wow. And, and then poke, and then if you poke this probe down two or three feet, pull it up, there's a little knob on the end of a privy digger's probe, that, <laughs> that like doing a little soil sample. Privy digger's probe. Yeah, I got a yep. couple out in the garage there. Um, and you use, you use a three, I use a three-footer and a five-footer. The guys in the big cities use... Um, five footers and eight footers, um, because just long story, they, they need to, because they dug the privies really deep in order to find, if you've found a privy, you're poking, you grid out the lawn, poke, 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 poke. And then when you reach the spot where the privy is, all of a sudden your privy probe will shoot down and you'll feel there's this opening down there. And you know, there's no reason that there's a cavity under the lawn there other than that was the outhouse. Yeah. And so they'll cut the lawn in, in a square and use tarps and lift the gla- lift the grass off and set that turf so they can so they can patch the lawn perfectly when they're done doing it and put it all back together. Um, this is serious business. Archaeological digs, yeah. Oh, it it sure is, and 
I mean, that's why you need to get permission to do them, and you can't do them in, on historical properties. Um, it has to be a random, you know, random home, and what mm -hmm. you're going through is random trash. Um, wow. But when I, when I started off with the seed layer, the, the, one of the first ones that I, I was so excited to try this because I dug, uh, you know, in the woods, woods dumps and mud dumps and whatnot over the years. And um, when I first got invited by these guys to, to dig a privy, and I, I'm watching them do this, and they're out in the middle of this lawn behind an 1840s beautiful home um, with, with a, man, you know, a landscaped lawn. And he, and he had figured out where the privy was. And I said, how, you know, there was no sign of it at all. It was the middle of a bright green lawn. <laughs> and he says, feel, you know, and I grab the probe and I feel I can just feel this. Okay. If you say so, he cuts it, cuts the sod off about, about, uh, if I remember about six foot by four foot square, lifted that off and set it on a tarp. And then we start digging and digging and digging. It just looks like we're digging in the lawn. We get down about four feet and I was in there and I, and I, push down and I lift up and it, it was pure white ash, you know, about four feet down. Mm. And we were hitting the top of the privy. Long story short, get down. It was about eight feet down and we hit the, what's called the use layer, which is the bottom two feet, which is now just dirt and pretty much just dirt and bottles. And the bottles are all hopefully just stacked in there um, with China, usually spittoons, bedpans made out, you know, redware. <laughs> And whatnot. No, I'm, I'm going to misrepresent. There, a lot of them are broken, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's a tight packed area of of artifacts and bottles and and uh, and I'm down there and I'm pulling up stuff and it's neat because you you know that you've reached a level um, as you work your way down. You're not going to hit a new spot. You're it's chronologically dated. And mm -hmm. once you're into the 1860s, you don't even have to look at the bottom of the bottle. You know it's going to open pontal mark on it. Everything is going to be hand blown, and it's really, really exciting. And I, and I got way down near the bottom, and I found this beautiful teacup. And I'm lifting up the teacup, and I, and I hollered up to my buddy. I said, "Oh, it's full of little seeds." And he said, "Oh, you're in the seed layer." And I said, well, "What? What's a seed layer?" And he said, that means you're at the bottom. I said, "Why is it called the seed layer?" And he said, "Well, in the 1840s, 1840s, which is really early um, for what we're doing." Um, these people, what their diet was, they were eating strawberries, raspberries, blueberries. And what I was, what I had was about a one inch layer from all the way across the base of this privy of the seeds that had passed through these people's bodies oh my goodness. And, and had sorted itself out and sunk to the very bottom. And that's how you tell you're at the bottom of, oh my God. of, a, of an early, early privy, not an 1880s, 1870s, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Um, <laughs> the bottom of those privies has about an inch of almost pure seed. Wow. Um, that's <clears throat> not certain seed. It's like a layer, like someone has laid it on there. Wow. Wow. You know what blueberry amazing. seeds and strawberry, yeah. those strawberry pits look like? Fine, oh, wow. fine seeds. I wow. just thought that was crazy. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. I, I never knew we were going to talk about privies. And, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. that was, Sorry. That was, no, it was absolutely... <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Uh, if someone, uh, you know, we're running out of time here, how would you suggest, I always ask this when I get into a field like this, how would you suggest if someone wanted to start, say, collecting or digging even bottles, is there a good resource online for them to, to start, you know, identifying bottles and things like that? Yeah, there's, there's a lot I can give you. I mean, the one that 
the one that I post on all the time is called antique-bottles.net. Antique it's a real informal um, forum with a bunch of different categories. Really great for beginners to just, just um, you can post a picture of what you found or pieces of bottles that you found and people help you date them. Huh. Um, you mm -hmm. know, advanced collectors are on there too because they're, they're hoping somebody digs something that they want. They can be the first one to get, you know, get their hands on something. Ah, yeah. Um, but, you know, these people don't get taken advantage of because it's all public and everybody's, mm -hmm. you know, hang on to that. It's a good one. Make sure you know what you've got. <clears throat> so ah. it's, a, it's a great. And then to ask, you know, people have a post that says, um, you know, I've got a 1700s house. Where should I look? And mm -hmm. people respond to that and describe, you know, tracing the rock walls, the font, the, uh, the property boundaries, the, the lay of the land, where would, you, where would you have pushed a cart if you needed to push a cart of trash? Where would you put it on your property? Wow. Like, you know, yeah. so you're using that type of, of mindset. Yeah. Well, it's funny you said, if you were going to do, if you were going to start in a field like this, and say, I don't know if there's another field like digging through a seed layer in an, out, in an outhouse pit. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't yeah. quite, quite like that. And I, it's repulsive sounding to some people when you're in the middle of doing it and you're, you're in a real historical uh, frame of mind and you understand that it, there's no, it doesn't smell. You can't tell that you're in an outhouse in the yeah. least, you know, it's, it's dirt. Yeah. Um, and it just feels all like turned to it, dirt. Yeah, yeah. And it just feels like you're in a, you're, you've opened a treasure chest. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. It's, it's just so much fun. Well, great. You've been absolutely great, Bram. And really a lot of fun. I'd love to. So this is Martin Willis with Bram Hepburn and we're signing off. This podcast is sponsored by WorthPoint. Find out what your antiques are worth at worthpoint.com.